Story number three of The Toys of Peace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. The Toys of Peace. Short Stories by Saki. T. James Cushat Prinkley was a young man who had always had a settled conviction that one of these days he would marry. Up to the age of thirty-four, he had done nothing to justify that conviction. He liked and admired a great many women collectively and dispassionately, without singling out one for a special matrimonial consideration, just as one might admire the Alps without feeling that one wanted any particular peak as one's own private property. His lack of initiative in this matter aroused a certain amount of impatience among the sentimentally-minded womenfolk of his home circle. His mother, his sisters, an aunt in residence, and two or three intimate matronly friends regarded his dilatory approach to the married state with a disapproval that was far from being inarticulate. His most innocent flirtations were watched with the straining eagerness which a group of unexercised terriers concentrates on the slightest movements of a human being who may be reasonably considered likely to take them for a walk. No decent-souled mortal can long resist the pleading of several pairs of walk-beseeching dog-eyes, James Cushat Prinkley was not sufficiently obstinate or indifferent to home influences to disregard the obviously expressed wish of his family that he should become enamoured of some nice marriageable girl, and when his uncle Jules departed this life and bequeathed him a comfortable little legacy, it really seemed the correct thing to do to set about discovering someone to share it with him. The process of discovery was carried on more by the force of suggestion and the weight of public opinion than by any initiative of his own. A clear working majority of his female relatives and the aforesaid matronly friends had pitched on Joan Sebastable as the most suitable young woman in his range of acquaintance to whom he might propose marriage and James became gradually accustomed to the idea that he and Joan would go together through the prescribed stages of congratulations, present-receiving, Norwegian or Mediterranean hotels, and eventual domesticity. It was necessary, however, to ask the lady what she thought about the matter. The family had so far conducted and directed the flirtation with ability and discretion but the actual proposal would have to be an individual effort. Cushat Prinkley walked across the park towards the Sebastable residence in a frame of mind that was moderately complacent. As the thing was going to be done, he was glad to feel that he was going to get it settled and off his mind that afternoon. Proposing marriage, even to a nice girl like Joan, was a rather irksome business, but one could not have a honeymoon in Minorca and a subsequent life of married happiness without such preliminary. He wondered what Minorca was really like as a place to stop in. 
In his mind's eye it was an island in perpetual half-mourning, with black or white Minorca hens running all over it. Probably it would not be a bit like that when one came to examine it. People who had been in Russia had told him that they did not remember having seen any Muscovy ducks there, so it was possible that there would be no Minorca fowls on the island. His Mediterranean musings were interrupted by the sound of a clock striking the half-hour. Half-past four. A frown of dissatisfaction settled on his face. He would arrive at the Sebastable mansion just at the hour of afternoon tea. Joan would be seated at a low table, spread with an array of silver kettles and cream jugs and delicate porcelain teacups, behind which her voice would tinkle pleasantly in a series of little friendly questions about weak or strong tea, how much, if any, sugar, milk, cream, and so forth. Is it one lump? I forgot. You do take milk, don't you? Would you like some more hot water if it's too strong? Cushat Prinkley had read of such things in scores of novels, and hundreds of actual experiences had told him that they were true to life. Thousands of women at this solemn afternoon hour were sitting behind dainty porcelain and silver fittings, with their voices tinkling pleasantly in a cascade of solicitous little questions. Cushat Prinkley detested the whole system of afternoon tea. According to his theory of life, a woman should lie on a divan or couch, talking with incomparable charm, or looking unutterable thoughts, or merely silent as a thing to be looked on, and from behind a silken curtain a small Nubian page should silently bring in a tray with cups and dainties, to be accepted silently as a matter of course, without drawn-out chatter about cream and sugar and hot water. If one's soul was really enslaved at one's mistress's feet, how could one talk coherently about weakened tea? Cushat Prinkley had never expounded his views on the subject to his mother. All her life she had been accustomed to tinkle pleasantly at tea-time behind dainty porcelain and silver, and if he had spoken to her about divans and Nubian pages, she would have urged him to take a week's holiday at the seaside. Now, as he passed through a tangle of small streets that led in directly to the elegant Mayfair Terrace for which he was bound, a horror at the idea of confronting Joan Sebastable at her tea-table seized on him. A momentary deliverance presented itself. On one floor of a narrow little house at the noisier end of Eskimo Street lived Rhoda Ellum, a sort of remote cousin, who made a living by creating hats out of costly materials. The hats really looked as if they had come from Paris. The cheques she got for them, unfortunately, never looked as if they were going to Paris. However, Rhoda appeared to find life amusing, and to have a fairly good time in spite of her straitened circumstances. Cushat Prinkley decided to climb up to her floor, and defy by half an hour or so the important business which lay before him. By spinning out his visit, he could contrive to reach the Sebastable mansion 
after the last vestiges of dainty porcelain had been cleared away. Rhoda welcomed him into a room that seemed to do duty as workshop, sitting-room and kitchen combined, and to be wonderfully clean and comfortable at the same time. "'I'm having a picnic meal,' she announced. "'There's caviar in that jar at your elbow. "'Begin on that brown bread and butter while I cut some more. "'Find yourself a cup. The teapot is behind you. "'Now tell me about hundreds of things.' She made no other allusion to food, but talked amusingly, and made her visitor talk amusingly too. At the same time she cut the bread and butter with a masterly skill, and produced red pepper and sliced lemon, where so many women would merely have produced reasons and regrets for not having any. Cushat Prinkley found that he was enjoying an excellent tea without having to answer as many questions about it as a minister for agriculture might be called on to reply to during an outbreak of cattle plague. "'And now tell me why you have come to see me,' said Rhoda suddenly. "'You arouse not merely my curiosity, but my business instincts. I hope you've come about hats.' I heard that you had come into a legacy the other day, and, of course, it struck me that it would be a beautiful and desirable thing for you to celebrate the event by buying brilliantly expensive hats for all your sisters. They may not have said anything about it, but I feel sure the same idea has occurred to them. Of course, with Goodwood on us, I am rather rushed just now, but in my business we're accustomed to that. We live in a series of rushes, like the infant Moses. "'I didn't come about hats,' said her visitor. "'In fact, I don't think I really came about anything. I was passing, and I just thought I'd look in and see you. Since I've been sitting talking to you, however, a rather important idea has occurred to me. If you'll forget Goodwood for a moment and listen to me, I'll tell you what it is.' Some forty minutes later, James Cushat Prinkley returned to the bosom of his family, bearing an important piece of news. "'I'm engaged to be married,' he announced. A rapturous outbreak of congratulation and self-applause broke out. "'Ah, we knew! We saw it coming! We foretold it weeks ago!' "'I'll bet you didn't,' said Cushat Prinkley, if anyone had told me at lunchtime today that I was going to ask Rhoda Ellum to marry me, and that she was going to accept me, I would have laughed at the idea. The romantic suddenness of the affair in some measure compensated James's womenfolk for the ruthless negation of all their patient effort and skilled diplomacy. It was rather trying to have to deflect their enthusiasm at a moment's notice from Joan Sebastable to Rhoda Ellum, but after all it was James's wife who was in question, and his tastes had some claim to be considered. On a September afternoon of the same year, after the honeymoon in Menorca had ended, Cushat Prinkley came into the drawing-room of his new house in Grantchester Square. Rhoda was seated at a low table, behind a service of dainty porcelain and gleaming silver. There was a pleasant tinkling note in her voice as she handed him a cup. 
You like it weaker than that, don't you? Shall I put some more hot water to it? No? End of tea. Recording by Graham Redmond.